Hi everyone, my name is Geoffrey Lynn. I'm one of the pastors at Trinity Church Adelaide and I serve with Evangelical Students North Terrace. The first of today's Bible readings comes from Isaiah chapter 36. So I'll ask you to open your Bibles there, please. And in a moment, I'm going to read the whole chapter for us. Isaiah chapter 36. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lashish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what confidence are you basing this conf- on what are you basing this confidence of yours? You might say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we're depending on the Lord our God, Isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna and Joah said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the commander replied, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the people sitting on the wall, who, like you, will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says, the Lord will deliver us. Have the gods of any nations ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of those countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent. They said nothing in reply because the king had commanded, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him, what the field commander had said. 
Second reading comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Well, as we come to this amazing bit of scripture, why don't we pray that God will help us understand it and he'll use it to make us look more like Jesus. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we do pray exactly that, that you will help us to understand this, make us look more like Jesus and be more confident in our faith, no matter what things seem to stand against it and make it look untrustworthy. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think it's fair to say that Christianity is increasingly mocked in our Western culture. I love going to stand-up gigs when I can. And one of my favourite stand-up comedians is a guy called Ross Noble. He's hilarious, most of all absurd, and he puts on a really good show. I remember going to see one of his gigs when I was living in Sydney, and it was fantastic. He really had the crowd in the palm of his hand. We were all laughing along. But then at one point, he really started getting stuck in to Christians and Christianity. He just thought this was ridiculous and that anyone who believed in Jesus or God really was insane. He had the absolute crowd in stitches and frankly, for that one point in the gig, it made me feel uncomfortable. Now, on the one hand, of course, I just dismissed what he was saying. He wasn't actually making any arguments against Christianity, he was just making fun of it. But on the other hand, it still did get under my skin. Despite the fact that I knew he was wrong, and he hadn't actually made any actual arguments against the gospel, he was just ranting, it still afterwards made, me, made a small part of me ask, what if he's right? What if belief in Jesus is ridiculous? What if it is a fairy tale? Have you ever felt that way when you've heard the gospel mocked? You know the mockery is wrong, but it unsettles you anyway? Makes you question what you really are basing your confidence on? Well, in today's passage, we see someone in exactly this situation. The year is 701 BC and Hezekiah is king of Judah. Hezekiah has rebelled against Assyria, his imperial overlord, and Assyria have responded by invading Judah and besieging Jerusalem. It doesn't look good. Now, to make that fact clear, the Assyrians come right up to the gates of Jerusalem and start mocking them. What makes you think you're going to survive this siege, they say? What are you trusting in to save you? Yourselves? Your allies? Your God? It's ridiculous. They will all let you down. And Hezekiah is rattled. He asks himself, what am I basing my confidence on? Can I trust God to save me? How will he respond? 
And how can this episode teach us when we lose our confidence? Well, let's find out. The first point, Sennacherib's taunt. Isaiah records the most deadly moment in Judah's history to date with taut brevity. Look at chapter 36, verses 1 and 2. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. Sennacherib also records this moment, but with much more triumph in his voice. The record is etched onto something that's now called Sennacherib's prison. There's a slide of it that's going to go up on the screen now. And it reads this. As for Hezekiah the Judean, I besieged 46 of his fortified walled cities and surrounding smaller towns, which were without number. Using pack-down ramps and applying battering rams, infantry attacks by mines, breaches and siege machines, I conquered them. As for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. I mean, you can hear the arrogance in Sennacherib's voice, can't you? Must have been terrifying for those who were in Jerusalem. We know the campaign had already been brutal. Sennacherib later recorded those victories in Judah in what's now called the Lachish Reliefs. That's on the slide as well. A 12 by 8 metre carving that Sennacherib put up all across his palace walls and which you can now see in the British Museum. And if the pictures on that relief are anything to go by, the Judean campaign had been savage. This was a terrifying situation for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, before we go on, isn't it good to be reminded by that, that all of these things actually happened? So much of Isaiah's poetry, I think we can forget that he's still actually talking about real historical events and people that actually really happened and existed. Isaiah's not just a book of weird poems and prophecies. It's a commentary on the real world of dust and kings and siege engines that you can learn about in the British Museum. When you're tempted to think that the Bible is fiction, as we sometimes are, that's good to remember. So, Jerusalem's surrounded and Hezekiah is trapped. What happens next? Well, Sennacherib sends a field commander to stand outside the city walls and taunt them. The basic theme of the taunt is Hezekiah is backing all the wrong horses. It's summarised in 36 verses 4 to 5. The field commander said to them, tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Basically, your situation is hopeless. What are you basing your confidence on? Are you basing your confidence on yourself? Well, that's hopeless. You're weak. Look at verse 5. You say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. Or look at verse 8. Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. You say you can put up a fight, they say, but it's all just hot air. Even if we lent you 2,000 of our own horses to help you fight us, you couldn't find knights to put on them. 
Don't base your confidence on yourself, Hezekiah. You're weak. Well, maybe you're not putting your confidence in yourself. Maybe you're putting your confidence in your allies. Well, I'm here to tell you that's hopeless too. Look at verse 6 in this taunt. Look, I know you're depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. Look, I know you're counting on Egypt to rescue you, but they're a spent force too. Doing that's like leaning on a staff only to have it collapse underneath you and pierce your hand. There's no point relying on Egypt. Are you relying on your God to help you? Well, he's the most helpless of all. Look at verse 7. But if you say to me, we're depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? In other words, haven't you already cheesed your own God off? Or look at verse 10. Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. In other words, it was him who sent us here in the first place. Or 36 verses 18 to 20. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Have the gods of any nations ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? No one else's gods have saved them. What makes you think yours can save you? Do you want to go to the British Museum to see how it went for everyone else who put their trust in their God? The basic point of Assyria's taunt is Hezekiah and Judah's situation is hopeless. All the things they're placing their confidence in, themselves, their allies, their God, will let them down. Assyria will destroy them despite all of that help. That's the situation. How will Hezekiah respond? Well, we see it in our second point, Hezekiah's prayer. It is fair to say that initially Hezekiah is rattled. Look at 37 verse 1. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. Tearing your clothes and putting on sackcloth are symbols of grief and hopelessness. He knows he's in real trouble. And the reason he's rattled is because everything the Assyrian commander has said is true. Jerusalem is militarily weak. They had a tiny army compared to the hordes camped outside their walls. They couldn't find 2,000 riders to put on Assyrian horses. They are weak. Egypt is a spent force. As we saw last week, they once were a great superpower, but now they're totally over the hill. Relying on them is like relying on an actor who used to be a superstar to go in your film, but now who's strictly B-movie material. And finally, and perhaps most shockingly, It is true that God did send Assyria against them. Isaiah has said as much in chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, therefore the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates, the king of Assyria with all his pomp. 
Hezekiah is rattled by the ridicule and for good reason. Everything the Assyrian commander has said is true. Because you see, that's how ridicule works. Effective ridicule doesn't pick up on the features of whatever it's mocking that aren't true. I mean, there's no point mocking Usain Bolt for being slow or Albert Einstein for being dumb. No, effective mockery takes something that is true about its subject, shows how it shares that feature with something else we already know is ridiculous, and argues that the thing that it's mocking must therefore be ridiculous too. So, for example, Tim Minchin is a well-known Australian musician and comedian who's very funny, but also highly hostile towards religion and Christianity. He often mocks the concept of God by calling him a sky daddy. Now, we can see what he's doing. He's describing God in ridiculous terms, a, a big man in the sky with a beard, so no reasonable person could possibly believe in him. And, of course, Christians don't believe that God is a big man in the sky with a beard, so there's nothing here objectively to rattle us. But it still can rattle us, because it's a description that sounds like something we do call God. Heavenly Father, even Abba, which is literally Daddy. Do you see what's happened? Minchin's taking something that's true about God, the fact he's our Heavenly Father, and changed the phrasing slightly to make it look like something ridiculous, a beardy man in the sky, and so make the Christian view of God look ridiculous too. That's smart. That's why ridicule rattles us. It takes something that's actually true about the gospel, rips it out of context, and then shows how it's similar to something that we know is ridiculous. That's why I felt like I did at the Ross Noble gig. And it's why we feel the same when we're listening to Tim Minchin or reading Richard Dawkins or hearing the snort of our friend when we mention the gospel or whatever it is that makes you feel silly to be a Christian. We get rattled just like Hezekiah. But the thing is, Hezekiah doesn't stay rattled. And here's the reason why. He realises that what the Assyrian commander is saying is true, but that it's not the whole story. You see, that's how ridicule works. It makes you forget the big picture. It makes you hone in on one aspect of the truth that, if taken in isolation, would be ridiculous. But when you see it in the light of the whole, it's actually perfectly reasonable. Yes, it is true that Judah's army is tiny. Yes, the alliance with Egypt has been a debacle. It's even true that God did send Assyria to punish them, so they deserve to have them on their doorstep. And it's also true that no other God has defeated the Assyrians. But that's not the whole story. God, unlike the gods of the nations, is actually real. And he's Lord of history. And he's determined to see his name honoured in all the earth, including Assyria, and has said he will do it. And so Hezekiah prays to the Lord in the light of that big picture. Look at chapter 37, verses 15 to 20. Hezek, uh, verses 15 to 20. 
Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these people and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone, fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. And how does God reply to that prayer? Now that Hezekiah, or any king of Judah in Isaiah, has finally asked God for help against their enemies, rather than rely on themselves or their allies, well, he promises to save them, quick as a flash. 37 verse 35. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. And we know from history that this happened. Sennacherib's prism doesn't record the miraculous defeat. It probably wouldn't, being fairly embarrassing and all that. But it is noticeably silent about how the siege of Jerusalem ended. And we know that when Sennacherib got home to Nineveh, he was promptly murdered by his sons and succeeded by a new king, Esarhaddon. After all that boasting and ridiculing, he was brought down almost instantly. The battle was over before it begun. Assyria lost. And Assyria lost because God proved himself to be king. Sennacherib had asked at the start of the siege, on whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Now, God had given him his answer. You see, how do you keep your confidence in God when he's mocked? When the comedian on TV scoffs at the idea of belief in God and everyone's in stitches and you feel ridiculous. When the kids at school laugh at the fact that you go to church and not just because your parents make you. When the other scientists in the lab can't believe that you can know so much about your field but still also believe in the resurrection of the dead. When your workmates think it weird that you won't sleep with your fiancé. When your unbelieving kids and grandkids humour your belief in heaven but really think it's just wishful thinking as you get older and more scared. The heavenly father of your prayers is really just the sky daddy of your fears. How do you keep your confidence in God then? Because it's not just other people who mock our trust in God, is it? Sometimes it's more than that. It's our own self. You catch yourself reading a bit of the Bible and saying to yourself, this is crazy. How can I believe this? I'm a 21st century person. I can't believe in pillars of fire and talking donkeys and the resurrection of the dead. You mock your own trust in God. Or your sins mock your trust in God. You did it again. How can God forgive you? 
How could God ever love anyone like you? Or your circumstances mock your confidence. I mean, let's face it, this doesn't exactly feel like the year where God has been particularly in control. It's been hard to do church and hard to do evangelism and hard to do life. How can we trust that God really is here to help us and wants to grow his church when we've had the year we've had? How can we keep our confidence in God when that happens? Well, we can remind ourselves of the whole truth of the gospel, not just part of it. The big picture of what God's doing in the world, not just the little bits that on their own look silly. Yes, without evidence, belief in God does seem weird and it lumps you in with some pretty weird people. But there is lots of evidence. You just need to remind yourself of it. There's history and scripture and nature and the British Museum. There's lots of reasons for believing in God. And when you think of all of them, it's not at all weird that you do too. Remind yourself of that when you're next in the lab or watching stand-up or talking with the other kids in class. Yes, there will be times you sin. And your lack of victory over those sins will seem to mock your trust in God, a God who promises to change you. What do you do then? Well, you remind yourself of the full picture of the gospel. Yes, you've been forgiven and that's done, but you're still in the process of being changed. And that takes time. And God has said it won't actually be done until you reach heaven. So just hang in there and trust that God is still working, even if it's slow. Yes, this doesn't feel like the year we would have chosen for church. But because we know the big picture of what God's doing in the world, we're okay with that. Because we know there's a season for everything. And sometimes God grows his church and sometimes he refines it. This is a refining time when he brought us closer to him and closer to each other. Even if we didn't get to do a lot of the things we'd planned for this year. What do you do when you find yourself mocked in your confidence of the gospel, you remind yourself of the big picture of what God's doing. And what do you do when you can't remind yourself even of that? You can't remind yourself of the full picture of the gospel when you're just too hurt or scared or doubting to do it? Well, you do what Hezekiah did. You pray and you ask God, the maker of heaven and earth, to remind you of everything he's done and to give you the trust you need to keep coming to him for help. You do what Hebrews tells us to do. Hebrews 10 verses 19 to 21. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. You remind yourself of the whole picture of what God's doing in the world and you ask him for help to keep remembering it. And there's nothing ridiculous about that. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of heaven and earth and when we remind ourselves of the big picture of what you're doing in the world, nothing you've done seems ridiculous. Father, it doesn't always feel that way to us. Our trust in you is mocked. It's mocked by others. It's mocked by ourselves. 
It's mocked by our sins. It's mocked by our circumstances. Father, when that happens, help us not to be rattled, but to keep our confidence in you by reminding ourselves of the big picture that all those facts fit into. And when we can't do that, praying to you for help to do it. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.